hey, it's good to uh, be together on this wintry day, and uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, is it not? Uh, so just to catch us up uh, on where we've been uh, the last couple weeks, as we've kind of been moving into this season of Advent together as a church, and, and, and I don't know about you, uh, but just kind of the, the, the buzz and the craziness of this time of year, it seems like we've got two choices during Advent, during this, this, these few weeks leading up to Christmas. The first choice is to kind of get on what I would call the roller coaster of stress. You know what I'm talking about? I call it the roller coaster of stress. So, and the roller coaster of stress in Advent isn't necessarily like where you sit because, you know, some roller coasters you sit, but some roller coasters you're like strapped in and your feet dangle uh, like that and it's kind of around your chest and then your feet hang out down below. But actually, I think the roller coaster of stress during Christmas is actually where you hang from your feet upside down and then it just spins you around like crazy. Anybody kind of feel like that? You may be feeling like that in the next couple weeks. Um, it is really, really easy to get lost in the busyness and the craziness of the holidays. And if you're anything like me, it's not just during Christmas, but I wonder if, if any of you really struggle with, with busyness, with, with distractions, just kind of getting a bit off course uh, in life. You ever feel that way? Or you just kind of, I've just been distracted lately, I've been kind of scattered, I've been, I've been all over the place. And that's one of the reasons that I love this. That's one of the reasons that we give these out every single week. We say, take them. Because the word of God kind of reframes us and centers us. And it kind of opens our eyes. And as we dig into it, it kind of tells us, ooh, maybe I've been going in the wrong direction here. Not just during Advent, but any time of year. So I finally got one of these things. No, not just a cell phone. A cell phone with GPS, right? Ooh, ah, right? Okay, good. So I finally got one of these. And, and I have to tell you, now that I have it, it's sad, but I'm thinking about all the gas that I might have saved. I'm thinking about all the time that I would have saved if I would have got it a few years ago. And my wife can attest to this. I'm not the greatest with directions. I can get lost uh, pretty easy. And, you know, as guys, we don't like to ask for directions. But for some reason, when I got this, I, I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm not going to listen to my wife say, maybe you should turn around. I don't think we're going in the right way. But I will listen to the little robot lady that has the British accent that lives inside of this little box. For some reason, I will listen to her. And But you know what I love about this? Here's what I love about this. When you When you make... Uh, a wrong turn, right? What does it say? Rerouting, right? And it's kind of in that nice, gentle voice, right? Rerouting. I just love that. And, and, but it's, it's actually a little bit like rerouting. You know, it's kind of in that, that robot voice. But, you know, you make a wrong turn. You, you screw up. You make a mistake. You know, the lady doesn't come on and say, why aren't you listening to me, right? Right? You idiot. What are you doing, right? It, the little British lady doesn't say that. Um, and it's, for some reason, it's just really reassuring. And, and she's so nice. And, and so I, I kind of look at it sometimes, and I just want to go, you know, thank you. I'm sorry. You know, like I find myself having a conversation with it, but it's that reassuring voice and it, and it gives you that confidence. And I don't know what it's saying to you if you have one of these, but what it's saying to me is, is, is just like, you know, it's okay. I'll still get you there. Right. You, you may have made a wrong turn, but, but I'll get you. It's, it's going to take a little bit longer now, but I'll still get you there. And I was thinking about that this week and we've all taken some wrong turns in life. We've all made some bad decisions and we're not here. None of us are here this morning because we have it all together. We're here because 
we're looking for some direction. We're looking for somebody to say to us, it's okay, I'll still get you there. And my prayer and my hope is is that during this season of Advent can be maybe a time when you get off the roller coaster of stress and you slow down. And I pray that during these next few weeks leading up to Christmas, you can hear the Holy Spirit say, rerouting, recalculating, right? Reboot. You know, some days we just need to reboot, you know? And I think that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to each of us today. I'll still get you there. I know things haven't maybe gone the way that you wanted them to in your life, but I'll still get you there. Um, I haven't given up on you. I think that's what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us today. Uh, I'll I'll get you home. I haven't given up on you today, and and I'll still get you to that place where you can say, not just at Christmas, but, but all throughout the year, I've got real joy. I've got real peace, and, and, I'm, and I'm forgiven. And I'm forgiven because I know the Savior, and, and, and I know that Christ, Christmas ultimately isn't about all the gifts that you can afford to put around the tree, and Christmas isn't all about ultimately about making my in-laws happy or getting my kid the perfect gift so that he'll be popular with his friends at school or making sure that when we go to the Christmas party as a couple that we put on a good face and that we look extra Christian for all our friends, that maybe that's not what Christmas is all about, and at some point the Holy Spirit just kind of whispers in our ear, recalculating, recalculating. And that's what the Word of God does for us. That's what I love about Scripture, is it kind of gives us a new set of directions. And that's the idea behind this sermon series that we started uh, a couple weeks ago called A Month to Meet Jesus. You see, we can get on the stress roller coaster during Advent, or we can step into this season of Advent, this time when we're, we're expectantly waiting on the Lord. And so last week we asked this question, if you had a month to meet Jesus, like really, not just theoretically, but really, if you had a month to meet Jesus, how would you live? Would your life look any different? Would you live for the things that really matter? And so last week we talked about this idea of leaving a signature of significance on every single thing that you do. That, that, that we learn that, that we find significance ultimately not in chasing the things of this world, but in pursuing the one who is significant. That we have an opportunity each day to breathe life into the people around us. And so I thought this week... Okay, we talked about that, and and maybe that blew you away, maybe it didn't, but this week, I'm telling you, it's just going to blow you away. It's a topic that you've probably heard no other preacher talk about in the history of mankind, and you're just going to stand there in awe and wonder with your jaws open the entire time. I got this brand new idea that I want to introduce you to today. Today, we're going to talk about love. Ooh. I can feel the anticipation. So some of you are sitting there going, ah, love. And some of you are sitting there going, ah, love, right? I've heard 50 sermons about love before, right? I don't need to hear another one. And you're thinking, I'm a pretty loving person, right? Christmas, we're all supposed to be happy and love and care about each other, right? I'm a pretty loving person. I can just kind of check out. Well, before you get too comfortable today, I want to read a piece of our scripture lesson that we heard read earlier to see what's really going on. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. And I think this may kind of reframe this idea of love today. 1 John chapter 4. And we're actually going to start, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 17, towards the end. 1 John chapter 4, 17. And it says this. And as we live in God, our love 
Hi. Grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid of the day of judgment. Now listen to this part. We will not be afraid of the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus in this world. Now I'm going to be honest. When I saw that this topic was coming up, I was like, oh, love, we've heard that before. But then earlier this week, I was listening to the radio, and one of the authors that came on said this. Most good things have been said far too many times and just need to be lived. Most good things have been said far too many times and just need to be lived. And then I was reading this passage for this week again, and it started to hit me in a whole new way, and I reread that last line in verse 17. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. And so I started to wonder, if I really did have a month to meet Jesus, I would want to be found doing just that. Living like him. In other words, living incarnate. Living incarnationally. Living like him. And now there's one of those churchy words that we throw around a lot this time of year. We talk about the incarnation of Jesus, right? You've heard that before, which simply means embodied in flesh. Embodied in flesh. It's, it's taking an idea of something and putting it in concrete form. And then we hear this from John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and they wrapped him and then from Luke, and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger. You see, love is a great idea, and everybody loves to talk about it. We write poems about it, and books about it, and songs about it, and we watch movies, and we dream about it. But it takes real sacrifice to make love concrete. It takes real sacrifice to put flesh on it. And that's exactly what we see God do at Christmas because apparently it was a sacrifice that he was willing to make. You see, real love puts skin on. Real love doesn't mail it in with a letter. No, when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. And so I wonder, what if this big churchy word called the incarnation or incarnationally We talk about Jesus this time of year. I wonder what if the incarnation wasn't just a one-time event at Christmas. What if we were supposed to live incarnationally every single day? Because when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. There was a Christmas uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I don't remember what year it was at my house, but my brother and I were, were, um, were somewhat kind of in a goofy mood as can- kids tend to get around Christmas. And we were just needing one last gift to give our presents. We'd gotten the usual gifts. I go down to the basement and I go to my dad's workshop. I get a board, I pound some nails in it, and I give it to my mom and say, here, it's a necklace rack for you. That was usually the kind of gifts that we gave to our parents. And uh, I was thinking about this and my, my brother and I were thinking, we need one last gift just to top it all off that'll make our parents just go, wow. So what could we give them? What would mom and dad love more than anything else? What would be the best gift that they could ever receive. And so as expert cardboard fort makers, we found a big washing machine cardboard box from the basement, and somehow we managed to get it upstairs. And so without our parents knowing, 
we, we, we kind of wrapped the outside with Christmas paper, and then we held onto the bow, and as we're finally kind of folding down the top, we, we stick the bow on top, and we close the lid. Now, we thought we were pretty smart, right? They have no idea what's going on here, right? And it probably took them a good 10 minutes to realize, hmm, where did our children go? And look, there's a big box uh, sitting in the living room with a bow. And then as we kind of heard them both approaching and we kind of heard them talking, you know, they're kind of playing along because they're good parents, right? And then we hopped out and simultaneously out of the big box yelled, Merry Christmas! It's us! Like, are you surprised? And my mom's like, yeah, we're really surprised, right? She's trying to kind of play along with it. And, you know, they played along, and they were very happy to receive us. And again, as my mom told us, you'll always be the best Christmas gift that we ever received. Everybody can go, aw, right? Right? Because the truth is, when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. When it's a matter of love, you give yourself. And so, looking back at our scripture today, I can't help but notice right away, In verse 9, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, power, power and authority can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot force love. We know that Jesus has all the power and authority in the world, but Jesus demonstrates a little bit different kind of power and authority in Bethlehem. It's one of humbleness and becoming the very least. And so what we find is that when you're the God who is love, it sets the stage for a pretty incredible story. If you're going to truly reach people, if you're going to truly love them, you have to step into their world. You have to get close enough to look them in the eyes. And so the God of the universe becomes a baby. He becomes incarnate. He lives incarnationally. And so I was thinking about that. And as followers of Jesus, the story of Christmas and what we celebrate this time of year is is simply this incredible truth that God is with us. We say that all the time. God is with us or Emmanuel, which comes from the Greek words Emmanu, which is with us, and El, or God. So God with us, Emmanuel. And so God introduces this profound truth at this point of the story. When it's a matter of love, you give yourself. Real love means you live incarnate. But what we so often forget is that This isn't just about Christmas. You might think, oh, that's a nice little Christmas story there, John. That's great. Jesus became a baby. But Jesus didn't just model incarnational living as a baby. He modeled it as he grew up and he lived among us. In other words, living incarnate became a lifestyle that Jesus integrated into every aspect of his ministry. This is far beyond a Christmas theme. So let's take a look. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. We're just going to hop around to a few different scriptures here. Mark is in the New Testament. It's a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's right in the middle of the gospels, right after Matthew. Mark chapter 2. So a little background for you here. When Jesus lives incarnationally, this is what he means. In Jesus' day, and and in a lot of places uh, today, especially in the Eastern world, when you eat with another person, that is considered an act of of intimacy. 
It's this social and, and interpersonal experience. And it's kind of hard for us to grasp what that really means because a lot of us are used to just kind of getting home and eating quick and, and are going through the drive through and shoveling it down while we're driving in the car, right? That's, that's eating to us. And so it's really hard for us to, to grasp that or we're in front of the TV or something like that. But to someone in Jesus' day, when you shared a meal with someone else, it was a sign of fellowship and community, Eating with people meant that you desired to have, not just be acquaintances with them, but when you ate with somebody, that meant you wanted to be close friends with them. That essentially, if I invite you to my house to eat, I'm inviting you into my life. It's not just, oh, I'm going to feed you and we'll never see you again. We're going to be close. I want you to be friends with you. And so we read this in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So right in front of the religious leaders of the day, the people that know it all, supposedly, Jesus isn't just talking about love. He's putting skin on love. Eating with sinners, eating with the outcasts of society. And so this act by Jesus, you might think, oh, Jesus is just eating. Everybody needs to eat, right? But what you don't understand is that Jesus is turning the social norms completely upside down. He's turning them on their head. And you can imagine the setting here. You got the ragtags and the misfits and the criminals and the prostitutes and the outcasts and all the people that you and I would most likely rather avoid in our lives. All around, sitting, joking around, laughing, smiling, eating, breaking bread with Jesus. Can you imagine the scene there? They think they're sharing a meal with a with a pretty good rabbi, little do they know they're staring into the face of God. They're looking love himself in the eyes. Later on, Jesus says, as we heard read this morning, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Because when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. You come yourself. We have a God that doesn't sit up in heaven condemning the world, but one who comes close enough to look each of us in the eyes. But you can only do that when you're living incarnationally. And again, the incarnation of Jesus in this world didn't even end at the supper table. It moved out into the streets where the people were. If you flip back one chapter to Mark 1, if you still got your Bibles open, flip back one chapter into Mark 1, there's a man with leprosy. This horrible disease and no one would ever want to be near you again, let alone touch you. And so that frames the story. And now look at this. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And the man was healed. And the, the, the thing here is that Jesus not only heals him, he touches him. 
Do you see what happened there? Jesus touches him. And again, it's turning the social norm upside down. What's important here is not the miracle. Most people would read this passage and go, wow, look at Jesus performed another great miracle. Ooh, ah, right? The shock factor. That's not the deepest thing that's going on here. Because there's many people that needed healing. And Jesus never got to them. We don't remember all the miracles, but the people that encountered Jesus remember his love. It wasn't that Jesus healed the leper, it's that Jesus touched the leper. But to do that, you have to be there. Because no one touched lepers. Real love means you enter into the world of the ones that you love. And for the leper, that meant Jesus stepping right into the messy situation and saying to him, when I look at you, I don't see a disease. I see a soul that needs to be touched by God. I see a soul that needs to experience Jesus. But to do that, you've got to be right there. You have to live incarnate. And so Jesus models this in his ministry, but did it end there? You might say, okay, that's how Jesus lives. That's great. And Jesus can do those sorts of things because he's God. But... It didn't end there. It continues on, and this idea of living incarnationally continues on through the early church. And, and I want to read this. Actually, I think we have this up on the screen from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is what Paul says. This is how Paul frames his entire ministry. Let's read this together. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Paul's picking up on this theme that when it's a matter of love, you have to be there. God with us. That being a follower of Jesus is really all about living incarnationally. It's not just for pastors, and it's not just for people who have all the answers, and it's not just for you today if you think, oh, I have to have it all together in order to live this way. This love that God has given us, it's so good. And Paul's saying, we want you to know about it so bad that we're not only going to tell you about it, but we're going to invite you into our lives so we can demonstrate it, so that we can live incarnationally among you. Because when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. Okay, 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 you're saying that might be great for Jesus and that might be great for Paul, but you see, that was kind of their full-time gig, right? They were... Pastors, right? Jesus was a pastor. He walked around with a robe, right? And Paul was kind of a pastor, kind of, right? That was their full-time job. They had plenty of time. I don't have plenty of time. Come on, it's 2010, right? Wrong. Is everything that we read in the four Gospels of Jesus' life happened in three years? And there were thousands of people who followed him. There were thousands of people to heal. There were thousands of things to do. And the same thing with Paul. Even in Paul's teachings, he said, any day I believe that Jesus is coming back. So Paul was living with this urgency that people got to know about the gospel. But yet Paul would stay at people's houses for weeks and months and even years Paul had entire countries to save. Paul was overseeing dozens of churches across Asia. But yet Paul says this, you know what? It's not about numbers. Paul says, I want to be a person of depth. I'm going I'm to spend time with you. I'm going to live incarnationally among you. And I wonder if somebody asked 
you today? Or would somebody, as they're talking about you, would they say, oh yeah, they're a person of depth. Would that be said of you today? And I'm not talking about your smarts, like depth as in like how smart you are. I'm talking about your ability to receive and then to give love in your life because you have nothing to prove because you are so centered on who you are. And I wonder if Christian maturity isn't about how much we know, but our ability to live incarnationally. Maybe it's not about the quantity of time you have, but with the intentionality that you live your life that really matters. I'm kind of a Lord of the Rings junkie, and so I'm always pulling out quotes from that. There's some decent theology, I think. So here's one of my favorite quotes from the wise Gandalf, and I think it really summarizes this idea today for us, and it says this. Those who have lived to see such difficult times, that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that has been given to us. I think Paul, the Apostle Paul would say, amen to that, Gandalf, right? <laughs> Paul says, I have, my, my job is to decide what to do with the time that's been given to me, the short time that I have on this earth. And you know what? I'm going to spend it living in people's homes. I'm going to spend it breaking bread with people. I'm going to spend it developing a close friendship with my partner, Barnabas. Because when it's a matter of love, you come yourself. This past week, I was reminded of how precious the time that we've been given truly is. And so we're out getting our family Christmas tree, uh, our whole family and my wife and I and, and my brother and his girlfriend, and we're all out and we're just about ready to head out and renew our family Christmas tree cutting tradition for another year. And my mom gets a call from my Uncle Scott that my grandpa is not doing so well. And a couple days later, he passed away. And so this is really a new experience for me. Um, I'd never had anyone close to me die before, and so it was... It was a pretty rough week, a rough week, I'll be honest. Um, but I'm, I'm really thankful for all the prayers and love and support uh, that all of you offered. Um, but it wasn't easy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, those of you that have lost a uh, family member know that, that sometimes there's nothing that anybody can say or do. They just need to be there with you. You know what I'm talking about? It's called the ministry of presence. We don't need to talk about theology when somebody dies. We need a hug. And that's what was very real for us, and, and sometimes it just hurts. And tell, let me tell you, there's plenty of things that I could say about my grandpa, and trust me, you'll probably hear him over the next few months. This guy's life was a sermon, for pity's sake. So you'll be hearing lots about that. But uh, the challenge that my brother and I faced was to try to put some words to his life as we were asked to lead the funeral service. Uh, last weekend. My grandpa lived for 88 years, and every single one of them was spent on the same farm. He was born on the kitchen table. And he lived there every single year of his life in rural Minnesota. And he and my grandma raised six kids, who then in turn had 17 grandkids, who then in turn had seven great-grandkids. And you throw in some spouses and some other in-laws, and there's probably 60 of us gathered there for this service. 
And if there's anything that we wanted to communicate in the funeral, it's just that it's okay to grieve. Um, and so this is what I, a piece of what I said to my family that day. We will hurt. We will grieve because we have loved so much. Someone once penned these words. Had I not loved so much, I would not hurt so much. But goodness knows that I would not want to diminish that precious love by one fraction. I will hurt and I will be grateful for it. For it bears witness to the depth of our meanings and for that I will be eternally grateful. We will hurt because we have loved. And when you think about it, you think about that phrase, we will hurt because we have loved. Nobody knows that better than our Father in heaven. Nobody knows what that feeling is like than him. The Father who endured sending his own Son to the cross to die for us because when it's a matter of love, you go yourself. And so I tried to live that out a few days before my grandpa's death and I was able to go and see him for the last time the day before he died. And, and I arrived at the nursing home and, and I kind of walked in and of course he was sleeping and he was in bed, but he was so weak. And it was weird to see my grandpa weak because he's big and strong. And he's weak and you can tell he's just tired from decades and decades of farming and tilling the earth. And you could tell because you looked at his hands and they were old and calloused. And so there we were gathered around the bed and there was my grandma right by his side as she's always been for 61 years rubbing those tired old hands with even more love in her eyes than when they first fell in love as kids. And now a couple weeks removed from that moment, it's pretty clear, if that's not the message of Christmas, I don't know what is. Because true love is incarnational. True love puts skin on. True love is willing to sit by the bed of the one that they love. What's so significant about this idea is that it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my grandma. It's about the life that Jesus modeled. And believe it or not, it's the very way that we're called to live as a church. You've heard me say dozens of times that, that God has called us to be a church that's way more concerned with mission, with reaching people for Jesus than anything else, to keep the main thing the main thing. You've also heard us say dozens of times that, that our work is not done until the tens and thousands of people without a church home in Des Moines get connected to Jesus. And this is where Christmas gets really, really exciting because it's not just about the baby in the manger that he's staying there. And it's not just about my grandma sitting by my grandpa in bed. It's not just about Paul living incarnationally. It's not just about Jesus eating with sinners. It's about the message to us today to live Christmas every single day, to live our lives incarnationally with the people around us. What does the incarnation mean for you today? What does it mean for you? Not just for Christmas, but in all the different places that you find yourself in. Who is that person in your life that is longing for you to enter into their world and love them with skin on? At the work, at your work, at the gym, maybe across the street. Will you be a person that lives incarnationally? 
It might be really, 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 really cold outside. But God doesn't stop moving. God is on the move in Des Moines. And you are an incredible community. Every single one of you. And Jesus is alive in you. And so this Christmas, don't keep it to yourself. Don't go through one more Christmas saying, wow, I had a great holiday. Give it away. Give it away. Because when it's a matter of love, you give yourself. That's what Christmas is all about. And I'm reminded once again of that phrase I heard on the radio this week. Most good things have been said way too much and simply need to be lived. Amen? Let's stand together.